0: Good morning, it's good to be here with you. Uh, Would you turn to Matthew 17 as we get into our uh, series, King Jesus? Um, A journey through the gospel of Matthew. I'm gonna put the map up that we looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, because I think it's it's good for us to kind of track the journey that Jesus is taking the disciples through in in their discipleship training Um, As we know from 15 and 16 from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus uh, took the 12 disciples way out of their comfort zone, and he's not afraid to take disciples out of their comfort zones uh, to teach them really important lessons. So he, he took them out of the boundaries of Israel uh, up to Tyre and Sidon. If you see that up by the Mediterranean Sea. And then in chapter 16, uh, he is ministering to uh, Gentiles in the town of Caesarea Philippi. Chapter 17 is the last time Jesus is going to be outside of the boundary of Israel in his ministry before the cross and the resurrection. And then when we get into 18, we're going to cover half of 17 today and the full chapter of 18 today, uh, this will be Jesus's last discourse in Galilee. So at the beginning, as 17 ends and 18 begins, uh, Jesus and the disciples move from Caesarea Philippi down to Galilee, back to Capernaum uh, in the region of Galilee. So uh, in Israel, think uh, country, state, cities. Uh, the country of Israel is regions like our states, so or the region of Galilee, as we get into chapter 19, where Jody will pick up next Sunday for us, he will leave Galilee for the last time and move down to Judea, uh, where he will be in ministry until the cross and the resurrection. So that's what's happening. Bible trivia, by the way, Jesus spent two thirds of his ministry in Galilee. So this is a significant departure. Uh, for him to leave Galilee at the end of 18 and move to, uh, move to Judea. Um, chapter 17, we read the beginning of 17 last week, and it's the famous Mount of Transfiguration story uh, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Uh, up on a high mountain and the scene is significant. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But where is this high mountain? Not as significant, but I think it's fun to talk about. Uh, They are again in Caesarea Philippi. And it says at the beginning of chapter 17 that he took Peter, James and John on a high mountain. Uh, The scripture doesn't tell us what mountain it was, but most likely it is that mountain right there called Mount Hermon. Uh, which is very close to Caesarea Philippi. Again, we don't know exactly, but Mount Hermon, 10,000 feet, rises way above. When you're in Capernaum, uh, and I was in Capernaum three years ago, on a bright day, you can see, you can see Mount Hermon. I always wanna say Mount Huron because Huron is one of the 58 14ers I've hiked it. It's one of the easier ones, by the way, if you're looking to get into hiking 14ers, I suggest Huron, Uh, it's a good one to start with, or Bierstadt which is off of 70. I digress, back to, back to the text, okay? Uh, that's probably where they were Is the most likely candidate, but we don't know. We don't truly know because the text just says it was a high mountain. Why was the Mount of Transfiguration significant? I'll give you three reasons. One, Peter, James, and John see the glory that Jesus had as God before the, the inauguration. Before the incarnation, (laughs) before the incarnation, Um, Jesus, one person, two natures, fully God, fully human, without losing any of his humanity, any of his deity, okay? They saw the transfiguration, the glory of Jesus, uh, who he was before The incarnation, and that would happen after the resurrection and the ascension to heaven when he sits back at the right hand of the Father. That's significant. It's really significant about Matthew 17. Also, it confirms Peter's confession. Chapter 16, Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? That personal question. We talked about this last week. And Peter says, You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, you are God. Huge moment, huge moment. They go up to the mount now and they, it, get, it gets confirmed. What he confessed, you are the Christ, it all gets confirmed, Jesus is the living God. Hugely significant. Uh, lastly, I would say that Jesus continues to prepare them On the Mount of Transfiguration for the cross and the resurrection. We read this verse last week. Let me remind you, right after Peter's high confession, you are the Christ, it says in verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teacher of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He began to talk with him over and over and over again about the core reality of his mission, which is to die for the sins of the world so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life. Amen. What happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is, is that, verse nine, we read this last week, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So the Mount of Transfiguration, really, really important uh, in this transition ministry time for his disciples. And then they come down off the mountain and there's this story, Uh, about this uh, little boy and a distraught father at the suffering of his little boy uh, in Caesarea Philippi. Again, another reason why, can we put that map back up again? Uh, The map, there we go. Another reason why it makes sense that it's probably Mount Hermon because they come back to Caesarea Philippi. That's where they are. And so let's pick that up, Uh, Matthew 17, 14 to 20, coming down off the Mount and they came to the crowd. Why was there a crowd? Well, because Jesus had fed 4,000 men, women, and children just like a week ago, two weeks ago. They saw the miracle. They're Gentiles, but they saw the miracle. Do you think they just like, oh, that was kind of a cute little fun day we had together? No, they, they see him again. There's a crowd around him. A crowd comes around him. And a man approached Jesus He kneels before him, Lord, have mercy on my son. He said he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. Uh, As a parent and any parent in the room, you know this. um, There's nothing harder than your kid struggling, hurting, suffering you will go to you will go to the ends of the earth to help them right parents this man is in pain he is suffering he is distraught because his son is suffering and so he calls on the very heart of god he calls on his mercy verse 16 i brought him i brought my son to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And so that's why he brings his son now to Jesus. Verse 17, "O oh unbelieving and perverse generation," Jesus replied, "How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me." Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private, They watch what's happening. They already know they were unsuccessful. They could have told Jesus that they were unsuccessful as well. So they tried to no avail. They see Jesus. The boy gets healed and they're confused. They're trying to figure this out. And so in private, they have questions about what happened. And they come to Jesus. Why couldn't we drive it out? And he said, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, which mountain? Probably Mount Hermon, probably the 10,000-foot mountain that's hovering over Caesarea Philippi. You can say to that mountain, move, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Um this reference we see to mustard seed faith. Uh, Two places in scripture. Uh, It's in Matthew 17, what we just read. It's also in Luke 17. It's the only two places we see this figurative language around mustard seed faith. Uh, We read the story of Jesus using uh, this figurative language around mustard seed faith and moving mountains because the disciples were unable, unsuccessful in bringing healing to this young boy. Uh, turn over, if you, if you have your Bibles open, turn to the left back to chapter 10. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 on their first kind of mission journey uh, as he had been teaching them and, and discipling them and empowering them, he sends them out for the first time. And it says in Matthew 10:1, he called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them, what does it say in your Bible? Authority. So in chapter 10, he had already given them authority. Authority to do what? Drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Fast forward back to chapter 17. What were they unsuccessful in doing? Driving out an evil spirit in this young boy. So the question isn't, did they have authority or power to do it? They had it. Jesus had already given them authority as ministers. So it wasn't that they didn't have authority to do it. The question, the struggle, and Jesus says it, the issue was their faith. The issue is our faith. Um, Now, again, we know this statement about moving mountains, a 10,000 foot high Mount Hermon like is not to be taken literally. Any teacher, Jesus is a teacher. You use illustration, you use parable, you use metaphor, you use figurative language. Why? To teach and to make a point Um, And Jesus certainly uses figurative language here about mustard seeds and mountains. The figurative language in chapter 18 is also quite intense that we'll read in just a few moments. Here's the metaphor of the mustard seed. One of the tiniest seeds found in the Middle East. If there was a tinier seed, I believe Jesus would have used that seed. But the tiniest of seed, in the Middle East was a mustard seed. So he uses the mustard seed, the most uncommonly small seed as an example, Jesus speaking figuratively about the power of God when unleashed in the lives of those with true faith, even true faith the size of a mustard seed. But as I'm reading this, it's a little confusing because in the same sentence, Jesus talks about little faith. Oh, perverse and unbelieving generation, you had little faith, right? Same verse. And then he uses mustard seed faith. And so what's the difference between little faith and mustard seed faith? And here's what I'm gonna invite you to consider. Uh, This is just in my study, in my journey, because it was a question that I had. Like, what is Jesus saying? What's the juxtaposition? Fancy word, got that in seminary. Uh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I don't know where I got that word. But anyway, it is between little faith and... Mustard seed faith. So go back with me a couple of chapters, Peter's story. The disciples, they're on the boat. They're on the Sea of Galilee. The waves and the wind are against them. Jesus sees it, starts walking on the water to them, right? And they, they freak out. They're like, oh, that's a ghost. You know, and it was Jesus. And then Peter, remember Peter? Brazen Peter. Gotta love Peter. Peter is such a great example for faith in process and some steps forward and some steps back. And I just think he's a great encouragement to our faith. He does what? He steps out of the boat and then Peter does what? He walks on the water. When he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water. And then the text says, and then he began to look at the wind and the waves. And as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and he started looking at the wind and the waves, the circumstances around him, he did what? Right? And so here's what Jesus told him in chapter 15. He looked at Peter and he said, you of little faith. And then he says, why did you doubt? And he connects doubt to little faith, okay? Chapter 16, Canaanite Gentile woman asking God for mercy, begging Jesus for mercy. And she was so persistent in her faith Remember the story? Her faith was so persistent and she persevered over and over and over. And then Jesus said to her, you of, you remember what he said? You of great faith. There was no doubt in her mind. She just kept believing and asking Jesus over and over and over. There was no doubt there. And he said, he affirmed her, you of great faith. And then we get to 17, this story where the disciples weren't successful in uh, bringing healing to this young boy. And then in the verse, the same verse, he says, because you had little faith, you doubted your authority. You forgot your authority and you you weren't able to minister. And then he says, but if you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed. And so what, what I think, what I'm inviting you to consider is that true faith, even if it's like mustard seed, but it's, it's, its faith is looking at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, right? If it's looking at Jesus, there is supernatural breakthrough, okay? Breakthrough in our lives is not having faith and your ability to have more faith. That, that doesn't bring breakthrough. I, that, that's what I think Jesus calls little faith or doubting faith. Like, I'm, oh, I'm going to have some strong faith here, and I'm going to pray really hard here, and I'm going I'm to be faithful. I'm going to this faith And what it, what, what, when we say that, we end up thinking, like, my faith is actually in my ability to have faith. And that's what Jesus calls little faith. Why? Because our eyes aren't on him. They're on our circumstances are on our ability to muster up more faith. So he says breakthrough faith isn't my ability to muster up more faith. Breakthrough faith is faith, even if it's a mustard seed true faith, even mustard seed faith, sees and believe in supernatural breakthrough. And he says in verse 20, nothing will be impossible for you. And what's the very next thing that Matthew says? What's the most impossible thing that we could come up with when we think about our faith? Verse 22 and 23, And when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man, a messianic title, Jesus is the Christ. He is God. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Faith in God, that's centered in God, that looks to Jesus even mustard seed faith. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.20, that he is able, we are able, because God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask, imagine, or think. Nothing is impossible with God. And that's where we'll land chapter 17 up in Caesarea Philippi. Now they're coming back down to Galilee and there's more lessons. Now, just so you know, a little window in, a little uh, kind of behind the curtain of my notes here. Um, When I have three of these bad boys, I can go for about 30 to 40. When I have four of these bad boys, I go a little bit longer. So 17 and now we got three more, but it's good. Not because it's me. (laughs) Not because it's me, because it's the word of God and God has important discipleship lessons for us. So I'm excited to get into chapter 18 with you. It's super, super, super relevant. Um, so I want us just to continue to be hungry, to be hungry for the word uh, this morning. Um, some time had passed between Caesarea Philippi and Galilee. So some time had passed between 17 and 18. And Uh, Before we read the first 10 verses of chapter 18, I wanna give you a little bit more context of the story because Mark gives us more detail of this story. Uh, Basically, what happened was Jesus is uh, walking from Caesarea Philippi back down to Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And an argument ensues amongst the disciples. And we need to remember, these are just young dudes. They're in process, they're learning, they're growing. But they got, they got stuff that they got to shake off, right? Um, and I don't know what happened necessarily, but part of me feels like Peter got the big head. Like, I got to go up on the mountain with James and John and we got to see Jesus transfigured. And you nine, you guys are JV. You guys are JV. And we're varsity. And this argument ensued around ambition and jealousy amongst the disciples because ambition and jealousy and an argumentative tense, that all goes hand in hand in hand together. And the conversation got tense. And here's what Mark tells us in chapter nine. And they came to Capernaum and while Jesus was in the house, probably Peter's house, his mother-in-law's home, That's probably where they were in Capernaum. He asked them, hey, what were you discussing on the way? Because they thought they were like, they kind of lagged behind. But let's remember, Jesus is God. (laughs) So he knew what they were talking about. He said, hey, boys, gather around, gather around here in the living room. Let's talk. What were you guys talking about along the way? But they were silent. They were silent for shame. They were embarrassed. Right, they were embarrassed, they were afraid. They were silent, for on the way, they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Right, the ego, the ambition, the jealousy. That's that's where they were. And this is where I wanna pick up, chapter 18. So with that context in mind, let's read the first 10 verses of 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, boys, you gotta change. You need to change. You need to rethink, okay? Unless you change with this child, looking at a child, that was his like sermon illustration, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Figurative language, intense figurative language. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone, a large stone ...hung around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire... And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Um, Do you think that this tense argument that was so centered in selfishness and ambition and ego and jealousy, do do you think it stirred Jesus up just a little bit? Do you think it like it was important? It was an important lesson. Um, I think we can feel the weight of how important this was. Lots, obviously lots of intense figurative language in here from Jesus to teach them a really, really important truth. Now, Jesus didn't rebuke them for asking a question about greatness How dare you talk to me about greatness? Like that's not what we see in the text. But what he did give them was a different lens for greatness. And the different lens for greatness is one word. And the one word is humility. And he used a child to help us understand humility. The key word is humility, chapter 16. Peter had previously confronted Jesus about the humiliation of the cross. Jesus had talked to him about the cross and he pulls him aside and rebukes him for the humiliation of the cross. And then they had just had this argument, uh, bickering about prominent places of greatness, pride and ego. And so Jesus uses a child to transform the way they think. Think about children, Children are needy, and they are not ashamed to let you know of their needs. And in my notes, I wrote, no amen, parents? (laughs) Come on. Amen. Amen. Let me read that again. Children are needy, and they are not ashamed to let you know of their needs. Jesus gets a child and he says, if you don't become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm using this child to teach you about greatness. And if you wanna know about greatness, it's about humility. It's about embracing your neediness. Humble yourself. Children are dependent on their parents. They are dependent. Children are unimpressed with status, humility. See, the world's way calls greatness superiority to others. And God's way, the kingdom of heaven, calls greatness humble service to others. And Jesus looks at the 12 disciples in this home and he says, you gotta become humble like children or you're not gonna understand who I am and what I'm doing and the way I'm going. All of them were to turn to humility, all 12 were to turn to humility as the most prominent trait of their transformed character. And you gotta have a heart for little ones the heart of God, the compassion, the mercy, the love of God to the little ones. By the way, in the Greek, it's children. It's translated little ones a few times. It doesn't just mean children, it means forgotten ones, the weak ones, the hurting ones, the little ones, the ones on the outside. That's what it means. And so he says, as he continues on, in this home, same context, everything is the same, They're all, it's all the same context in this lesson. Verse 10, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And then your Bible might go from verse 10 to verse 12, and you're like, where is verse 11? Here's the reason for that. Some, uh, some of the original manuscripts that we have have verse 11 in there, and some don't. So some translations don't put verse 11 in their translation and some do. So I'm reading out of the NIV. It's not there uh, in this translation, but the verse that's added is, is Luke nineteen ten, which when Jesus says, I came to seek and save those who were lost. Okay, that's verse 11. And then he shares this famous parable. What do you think? If a man owns a 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost." The very heart of God is compassion and mercy and seeking after the ones who have wandered. And I think for us to rightly understand this parable and receive the mercy and the grace of this parable, we should see ourselves as the one. I think we miss the parable if we're like, well, I'm glad that God is compassionate about the scoundrel that leaves the 99 and goes off. Good for Jesus, good for the one. I think we experience a revelation of the grace of God when we look at this parable and we go, I'm the scoundrel. I'm the one that left. I'm the one. It's my sin. It's my wandering. I'm the one that left. I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that's hurt people. And the mercy and the grace of God didn't give up on me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. The humility to receive his pursuit of us and his restoration for us. Now, I want to bring us uh, to the progression of Matthew, okay? Okay. And I love that we're doing this chapter by chapter because when we do it a full chapter, we read the whole chapter, we study, we dig in the whole chapter and it helps us hold the context better. If I was gonna teach us through the epistle of um, Philippians, we would, we would do that verse by verse. Why? Because it's four chapters and we can get through it. Matthew has 28 chapters. We'd be in, we'd be in Matthew for five years. And so we made a decision, let's go chapter by chapter. And there's, there's a challenge to that because we don't have time to unpack every single thing in every chapter. But the beauty of it and the helpful part of it is that we hold the entire chapters together in the context. And that's really, really important, especially in the next passage. Because what Jesus is going to do is he's gonna give the disciples some practical help and bringing ministry of restoration in the body, in the family of God, when the person that wanders off is brought back into the fold. How do we do that? How do we embrace the ministry of restoration? Now this passage, this next passage, verses 15 to 20, has become known as the church discipline passage. Oh, Matthew 18, that's the church discipline passage. So let me say a couple things about this before we get there. Um, well, let me say three things. For the first thing, I'm going to be intent. I'm, gonna, I'm passionate about this. So you're going to feel, you're gonna just, just going to get that from me, okay? Because I love this church and I love the word of God. And I believe that this passage has brought harm to people and not in this house. And we got to see it in a different way. Because the phrase church discipline isn't in the text, number one, but it's become known as the church discipline passage. And that phrase isn't even in here or excommunication, newsflash, also not in the text in this passage. Okay. So let's just, let's just know that. And then secondly, I want to say, when you hear the phrase church discipline, do you have positive thoughts or negative thoughts? I got the same kind of chuckling in the first service. Like what? Why? Because most of us either know a story or we've experienced it ourselves where this passage has brought a lot of harm, hurt, and people have left the church, left the faith. So does Jesus address relational conflict and restoration in Matthew 18, 15 to 20? Yes, yes, but it's important that we see the whole progression, the whole progression of the thought because it's in one setting in the living room of Peter's mother-in-law's home and here's the bookend of the passage. It first starts with humility, humility and then it ends with forgiveness, And when we have an understanding of, like, rest, I'm not even going to say church system because it's not in the text. When we talk about uh, restoration, ministry of restoration, reconciliation within the church family, it has to be bookended with the way Jesus is teaching us here with humility and forgiveness. We don't just rip it out of the lesson that Jesus taught and use it to harm people. So here again, full progression of thought. Uh, Where is it? Right there, okay? And we're right in the middle of that, right in the middle of that. Christians are called to handle disputes in love with humility, gentleness, and forgiveness. So with that, let's read the practical instruction. Remember, he just talked about leaving the 99 and finding and seeking after the one. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Not to, not to your sister or your brother or your mom or your dad or your neighbor. Not to this, that, and the other. Just the two of you with discretion and private so that we protect people. Okay? Not on your Instagram story. And we throw it out there in an email because gossip is sin, it's not the way of Jesus. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he, she owns, repents, I'm sorry, done, done. You've won over your brother, so it's done, okay? But then he says, next step, if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter, he's gonna quote Deuteronomy, is what was established in the old covenant. If he will not listen to you, if there's not repentance, if there's not personal responsibility, if there's not ownership, if you will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, also with discretion, also in private, also without gossip, okay, step two. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I'll tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth, Jesus um, used the same language right after uh, Peter confessed that he was the Christ, and he says, I'm gonna give you keys to the kingdom. So when you have keys to the kingdom, you've been given empowerment, you've been given authority to be a a witness, to be um, a representative of Jesus and his ministry. Same language here. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if, t- if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. There I am with them Moving in my spirit to bring forgiveness and restoration and healing in our lives. That's the context. Bible study methods. Context is king. We don't take passages out of their context to make them say what we want them to say. We read passages within the context in which they are written, okay? First, secondly, Scripture interprets scripture and scripture doesn't contradict. This is a bit of a lightning rod passage, right? Uh, it's confusing sometimes. It's, it's, we don't understand everything about it. And so when we're studying or when we're reading, it would be wise for us like, are there any other passages out there about restoration? that we could look at and hold with Matthew 18. And I want to bring two of those passages to your attention. You don't need to turn there, but you can write this down. Here's what Paul tells the church in Rome. Romans 2:1 through four. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment You do the same things. Be careful when you point a finger in judgment at someone because there's three more pointing right back at you. Ever seen that analogy before? You'll never forget it now. Be careful. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the justice of God, the love of God. We know it's based on truth. So when you, but when you do it, a mere man, when you pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, which Paul's like saying, you're being a hypocrite. And you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Verse four, really important verse. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance, to change. Okay. Kindness leads to change. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 6, verse one, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, anybody know what it says? Restore him gently, not harshly, gently. Gently. Why do I read this to you? So that we understand biblically that it's kindness that leads to change. So when we go and we seek after one that wanders and we bring him back into the church community, there's feelings there, there's hurt there, there's a process there, but it's kindness that leads to to people's change. And the reason why I read this as well is because it's gentleness that leads to restoration. Scripture interpret scripture. Now, would you agree with me that relationships with one another as uh, the people of God, uh, we're friends, we're family, we're disciples, we love Jesus, we're following Jesus, uh, let's get to know each other's stories, let's, let's talk, let's engage, let's have potlucks, let's go to camps, let's do this on Sunday, let's live life together, Let's know and be known together. Would you say that that's a gift that God gives to us in terms of like when He says like I came to give you abundant life? Would you agree that the relationships that we have with each other is part of the abundant life that Jesus has given us as a church? Would you agree with that? Would you also agree that it's hard? It's hard because we're people, because we're in process, because we're learning and growing, and because we make mistakes. And because like the disciples, we get tripped up and we're talking about who's the greatest and our flesh gets in the way and our selfishness gets in the way and our pride gets in the way. All those things happen. So it's hard. It's a gift, but it's hard. Acts 2.42 says that the first century church, they devoted themselves to four things, apostles teaching, breaking bread, prayer, and fellowship. Fellowship. The word fellowship is used 20 times in the New Testament and the first time it's used is in Acts 2:42, the birth of the church. Like the birth of the new covenant church, Acts chapter 2, the first time we see that word fellowship, which the Greek word for that is anybody, anybody know what it is? Koinonia. The koinonia. So when we have friendship with one another as believers in Christ, we have koinonia fellowship, meaning we have communion We have something really, really important in common with each other, and it's a gift of God. Koinonia is a gift, and it's a challenge, especially when conflict arises due to pride, selfishness, or some other kind of hurtful sin. Would you agree? So now I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands right now of those in this room who have been hurt by other Christians. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm also not gonna ask for a show of hands to those in this room who have been the one that did the hurting. I'm not gonna ask for that. But my discernment is that the vast majority of us would be raising our hands to one or probably both. Me, I'm the, not, I'm the one. This is to say, don't you think we need some help in this area? We need help. And Jesus gives the disciples the help that they need. And I pray that we will humble ourselves to receive the discipleship, the teaching, the help to operate in humility and gentleness and kindness and forgiveness so that real repentance and real restoration can occur. Amen? Okay, check it out. Last page of notes. Here we go. This is too important. This is too important. Here are the steps. Verse 15, just between the two of you. Some of us just, we just, we have to, we just have to get, we got to grab that. It's just the two of us. And I would even say this, like, as people of faith in humility, like, if someone comes to you with someone against someone else, I would equip you to say, I- I'm going to ask you to stop. Have you gone to that person? Because you need to go to that person. And if you need some help, I'll come in. Gently, kindly, with humility. But we gotta gotta keep the gossip river from just flowing. Because that's where a lot of people get hurt and harmed. Would you agree? And that's where Jesus starts. This is about protecting people. People because he's a shepherd and a shepherd loves and protects and cares for his sheep. Second step, one or two others along, still with discretion, still privately, still not gossiping, which is sin. And then in extreme cases to the church, like we just, we need help, we, we grab two or three, it's still not happening, will you? Like this, this situation might be where uh, someone might bring our leadership team in, like, The five of us and to help, it's not to condemn, it's to help, it's about helping bring restoration, okay? And this, this, this part, verse 17, this is where it gets wildly taken out of context that brings harm into people's lives and they leave the church and they leave the faith and they don't ever come back again. Because the people of God that's supposed to operate in mercy and love and humility and gentleness and the kindness do just the opposite. It's like we wound our own people. And I just want to say as a pastor of a church, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. And he makes this phrase, treat treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let's just keep it simple. Like when we read the Bible, we don't have to like check our common sense at the door. Like what does he mean? Well, what did he just show the disciples in chapter 15 and 16? How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Treat pagans and tax collectors like you've seen me treat them. How did Jesus Treat the pagan, Gentile, Canaanite woman in Matthew 15? Kindness, gentleness, love, care, healing, compassion. How did he treat the thousands of people? Pagans, a hillside of thousands of pagans. Pagan on pagan on pagan. How did Jesus treat them? He said, I have compassion for these people. Treat him like a tax collector. Uh, newsflash. Guess what Matthew was before he wrote the gospel of Matthew? A tax collector. How did Jesus treat him? He went to his tax booth and he said, Come follow me. Matthew is the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He, he's the one that coined this. He was a tax collector. What did Jesus do with Zacchaeus in Luke 19? Where did he go with Zacchaeus? Where? Into his house. his house listen guys all I'm telling you to do is treat the Gentiles and treat the tax collectors like I treat them and we leave the 99 and we go find the one that's not too hard is it Seek and save that which is lost. Jesus gave the disciples his authority to be like him. And he uses this language, whatever you bind, whatever you loose. Binding is about caring for and protecting people. So a shepherd would have a a staff and a rod, right? And they would have these stone um, areas where they would protect their sheep. And the staff with the big hook was used to corral the sheep. And the rod was used to ward off the enemy, the wolves, and they would sleep, an actual shepherd would sleep in the doorway to protect the sheep. So binding is about protecting, protecting. And part of protecting people is about accountability and personal responsibility, healthy boundaries, having healthy boundaries. And I would say this should look and feel like compassion and gentleness and kindness. And then he talks about loosing. Loosing is also about caring for and protecting people. But oftentimes the person that wanders, do you know where they're spinning out on? They're spinning out in in fear and shame. They're spinning out in fear. And so loosing is when they come back into the community, you declare their forgiveness and their welcome. You're forgiven and free and you're welcome. And we're gonna walk this road with you also feeling like compassion and seeking and saving. And simply, I believe Jesus is just telling the disciples, listen guys, in my authority, you are to operate in humility, gentleness, restoration, seek after the wanderers, forgive them, bring them back. Does this authority sound or feel harsh to you? Peter is wrestling. In this moment, Peter's wrestling. And I love Peter because he's always going to say what he thinks. And for good or for bad. And Peter is like, okay. All right, Jesus, but. I mean, when, when the homie leaves like time after time after time after time. I mean, surely there's a limit to your grace and your forgiveness. Won't you agree with that, Jesus? I mean, don't you think there should be a limit to grace and mercy and forgiveness? Like, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're laying down. I'm trying to pick it up here. But, I mean, if you just operate this way, people. So, Peter opens his mouth like he always does. And he says this, and we'll close here. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. That's a lot. That's a lot of forgiveness. But surely, certainly, there has to be a limit to your grace. Right, Jesus? And this is how Jesus responds. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, if you do the math on this, it comes up with 490 times. Do we think that Jesus put a limit at 490 times? No, I don't think so. I think he's just, no, 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 bro. No, bro. Peter, listen to me, bro. Uh Ah, not seven times. 70 times, seven times, again and again and again and again and again and again. If you forgive the same person in your life, someone that you know, someone that you love, and every time they do it, it's sin, and you forgive them over and over and over and over, up to 490 times. Do you think forgiving people becomes naturally part of who you are in your DNA? It just becomes part of who you are. No, Peter, there's no limit. There's no limit to my grace. There's no limit to my mercy. There's no limit to my compassion. It's over and over and over and over again. Humility. Here's the discipleship lesson for us, church. Humility, humility, humility 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 seek to restore seek to restore forgive 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 humility 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 seek to restore seek to restore seek to restore forgive 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 this is this is this is the teaching this is the discipleship this is the way we are to be ministers with his authority To which I say, Lord, help us see your way of restoration, transform our minds and hearts. Lord, give us the humility and the kindness to stop withholding forgiveness and restoration. Lord, empower us with your gentleness and compassion. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as he is on the cross. Uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, Can we do this? Yes. Not by ourselves, not because we're trying to muster faith, but because we believe Jesus and we're gonna follow him together. I uh, was talking, worship team, you can come back up. Um, we're gonna sing a couple songs in response about how much we need Jesus and how dependent on Jesus we are. But I was spending some time on um, Thursday with um, my friend Stan and my friend Ben and we were talking about this passage because I'll be honest, like this is, a, this is a challenging passage to teach. I probably spent double the amount of time on this preparing this week than I normally do and I've just been wrestling through it, and so I was engaging with Stan and Ben about it, and they were offering feedback with me. and anyway, Stan tells me this story about his aunt Hilda. Did you ever know did you ever know Aunt Hilda? She was 98 years old, and she's in glory now. she's with the Lord. But Stan told this story that he went to his aunt Hilda. And he just simply said, Aunt Hilda, why do you think that you have lived this long? And she just said, oh, that's that's easy. I let go of things. I let go of things. I forgive and forgive and forgive. I let go of things. Because when we hold resentment, bitterness, Anger festers in our souls And it affects our bodies I let go of things To which I just go That was a paraphrase of her just saying I follow in the way of Jesus Would you pray with me? Lord, we want to worship you now Um, All of us in this room And I'm at the front of the line We're all wanderers And you left the 99 and you came and you found us. We didn't find you, Lord. You've never been hiding from us. You found us. And that's the good news. And so, Lord, as those who have been brought back in, those who have been restored, Lord, we wanna operate in gratitude and the humility of children and to be those who go and seek and find and restore. And Lord, we wanna operate in the radical, gracious forgiveness of Jesus. Lord, I pray healing, healing for anyone in this room that has been hurt, harmed, By Christians, by a church, by this church. Lord, I pray that you, Jesus, that your words today would be a healing, hope filled, peace filled salve to our wounds. And Lord, we declare it is by your wounds that we are healed and then we are empowered to walk and to follow you in this humility in this seeking restoration and in this way of forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.